Virginia Tech had another 1,000 excuses to lose and won again this week, improving to 2-0. Virginia showed it may have closed the gap some between itself and league power Clemson, and Ethan Joyce of the Winston-Salem Journal joins us to talk about athletes in the age of social media. All that and more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 23 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me as always, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year, the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. David, how are you? Good afternoon, Mike. I'm well. Yeah, it's uh, been fun. It feels a little more normal. We're into a rhythm. And uh, this past weekend, I thought we enjoyed a a milestone together. We covered a road game, uh, a true uh, (laughs) on the road, get out and go. So tell me, what what was that experience like for you from from covering the game itself to to getting there, to traveling, to eating, to, to all of that? Mike, every game's a road game for me, brother. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> See, a home game for me is a 300-mile round trip to Charlottesville. <laughs> but no, I, I, I understand your, your question, and uh, it, was, it was fine. It was the first time I'd rented a car since March and uh, m- made, made sure I had my wipes and my uh, – hand sanitizer and everything ready to go there. And uh, I actually went to a restaurant with a friend Saturday morning, but I insisted that we eat outside. That sounds smart. We uh, we have a similar way of looking at things. I uh, I was a little nervous getting on the road, um, but I did the the hotel. It was funny that the chain of hotels I used they they have a sticker that they put on the door to show that like the door hasn't been reopened since it was cleaned. Uh, wow. Which is interesting because it begs the question: Do you normally clean the room and then have people randomly coming in and I don't know licking the remote or what exactly is <laughs> is I, I'm not sure what the sticker it's I think it's more symbolic but uh, I appreciate that the efforts there we also did a a friend and I uh, did a. A takeout meal from a barbecue joint, smoking pig down there in Clemson. And I have to say, the workers were all wearing their masks. Most of the customers were wearing their masks. And uh, at the end of the day, I, I mean, I felt like we safely got down there and and safely watched some football. And uh, that's a great feeling. Yeah, smoking pig. They have a good they have a good tailgate there, right right there in Pendleton on the way into Clemson. Yeah, cool spot. It's like a food truck too, so you didn't have to uh, even go into the shop to get your. I had brisket, pulled pork, and baked beans, fried okra. So I was ready to take a nap by the time <laughs> we were ready to kick off. Now. We're going to talk a lot more about that game that, that we went to. Uh, but first, let's look at Virginia Tech's win over Duke. The Hokies, or at least most of them anyway, <laughs> they went on the road. And David, they played without 21 guys on Saturday, including some key starters in the defensive secondary. Once again, they didn't have new coordinator on defense, Justin Hamilton. And once again, they found a way to win. 38-31 on the road in Durham. Before we get into the X's and O's of this one, let's talk about what this team has had to overcome to be 2-0. And, you know, tech coach Justin Fuente, he explained the mindset that he's asking his team to have in the face of all this COVID uncertainty. You got to find a way to just make it to breakfast. You know, that's, um, we had a Navy SEAL come talk to us early in, in fall camp and I I asked him off to the side. I kind of went all fanboy on him to talk to him about what it was like training and all that sort of stuff. And, 
you know, he kind of told us, he said, you know, Justin, if you know, if you look at all of the training you have to do to be a Navy SEAL, it just overwhelms you. He said, but if if you can just focus on making it to breakfast, and if you make it to breakfast, try and make it to lunch, and if you make it to lunch, try and make it to dinner, and that's all you worry about, then you've got a chance to be okay. And so we've kind of taken the mantra of let's try and just make it to breakfast and take it one step at a time and control what we can control. And I know y'all are probably tired of hearing me say that, and I know our players are probably tired of hearing me say it, but it's the absolute truth. I mean, we, we've got to do our best to control what we can control and, and just try and make it to breakfast. David, they've, they've made it to breakfast. They've eaten breakfast. <laughs> they've eaten lunch. They've eaten dinner. They're 2-0. and oh. How impressed are you that they've been able to do that? Remarkable stuff. Mike from from the Hokies. Not that North Carolina State or Duke is a national championship contender, but to be down more than 20 players for for both games. And it's unclear exactly how much overlap there was with with those two groups of 20, but it, it wasn't total because of the of the defensive backfield absences we saw Saturday at Duke, but it it is really really a testament to that staff and to the players and if anything or anyone embodies college football 2020 it is tyler matheny mm-hmm. i mean we're talking about a former walk-on who was recruited as a wrestler by uva who ends up at virginia tech and the next thing you he's starting at safety in an acc game and oh by the way gets a pick <laughs> i mean you can't make that up yeah, I, I don't want to set a low bar, but had this team just come out and been able to function with everything that's happening, I think I would have been here saying, what a great job. What, what an amazing organization. What resilience to be able to get out and play a football game or to be competitive in a football game to win twice. I, I really, I know we put too much emphasis on winning and losing. And I thought Justin Fuente made a great point uh, Monday when he said, you know, if the outcome had been different, he still would have felt the same way, uh, pride. In, in his guys and his organization. But the bottom line is they did win twice, and that's really impressive. And let's talk a little bit about how they did it and, and get into the X's and O's because they look good, man. And, and it starts for me offensively with that offensive line and Khalil Herbert. What do you see in there? Khalil Herbert has got an extra gear like few backs we've seen in recent years at Virginia Tech. And think about this, Mike. Herbert had more than 200 yards and averaged more than 10 yards a carry. Only one player in Virginia Tech history has managed to do that. 200 plus yards, 10 yards a carry. And that other player was Michael Vick. <laughs> Anytime you're compared statistically to Michael Vick, you're doing something right. And, you know, we talked to to Mac Brown, whose team is going to be tasked with defending Khalil Herbert. And he made the, the great point that sometimes you have a, a good offensive line and a lousy tailback (laughs) and and you cuss that offensive line Uh, and sometimes you have a good offensive line and a good tailback and you pay only attention to the tailback uh Khalil Herbert is making that offensive line look good, but hey, that offensive line is also making Khalil Herbert look pretty good. Couldn't agree more. That's a really stout bunch, and I, I don't think you can oversell how much Brock Hoffman has has brought to that to that room, uh, to, to onto the field. Uh, he is he's a different cat now, 
and they they are really really gravitating toward him and kind of feeding off of him yeah i wrote a story about he talked about bringing an edge and a nastiness to that offensive line he said it was kind of his mindset a year ago when he was sitting out when he was just practicing to try to bring that and you know it's one thing for brock hoffman to say that right like i want to bring an edge and a nastiness but his teammates agreed i mean christian darisov said that they didn't have that a year ago and that hoffman was bringing it to the group and that that's a difference and you know it it might seem like because it's so intangible, like maybe it's not that big a factor. I think it's a huge factor. They talk about finishing blocks. They talk about um, you know being tough, getting back up if you are beaten, things like that. And and you know goes back to what we said with Justin Fuente and the mindset. Um, this mindset that this offensive line has, this vice squad, as they're calling themselves. Yeah, about that? That's a great name, isn't it? Sometimes there's a nickname that's just too perfect not to use. And when your offensive line coach is Vance Vice, uh, this is one of those cases. But yeah, David, I think it's that mindset has been infectious for this group and it showed up on the field. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and, and not only with Herbert running the ball, that kickoff return the other day was large because Duke was getting ready, I think, to take control of that game. At least it felt like it. And for Khalil Herbert to take it back 80-plus yards and put Virginia Tech immediately in the red zone, and then for the Hokies to turn that into a touchdown, to me, was just a big swing point. That's a great point. I, I think sometimes the design of the game of football, the kickoff is there to keep things in order, to give you a chance to keep things in order, right? The other team scores, and if you can make a big play on kickoff, everything kind of goes back to being a little closer to even. And, and I think to your point, that's what Herbert is bringing. You know, it, if Duke gets a little momentum, if Duke gets on the board, the fact that that's the next play kind of just shifts the momentum back. And, you know, the other thing that, that has shifted <laughs> momentum a number of times has been the play of Virginia Tech's defensive line and uh, Manuel Belmar, Justice Reed, Amari Barno. Uh, we wondered, would they be able to get after the quarterback this year, especially when we found out that Tywin Garbett wasn't going to be playing this season? These guys are getting the job done. Six and a half sacks a game, Mike, leads the country. Very small yeah, sample size, but still, 13 sacks in, in two weeks is a lot to be happy about. And oh, by the way, the Hokies sacked Sam Howell last year five times in Blacksburg and will need a similar type performance, I would think, Saturday because Sam Howell is just surrounded, much like last year, same personnel surrounded by weapons on the perimeter and at running back. Absolutely. This is one of those games where you talk about disruption, you talk about throwing off the offense's timing. Virginia Tech's got to be able to do that. Let's look, though, a little bit at Virginia Tech's offense as they get ready to play North Carolina. We don't know yet, but they should have Hendon Hooker back. He was available last week. They didn't use him. He wasn't I guess ready. Yeah, you know, he'd been in and out of practice, out of practice for for a long time. That Justin Fuente won't exactly give us <laughs> how long he's been out, but <laughs> you know they're not having trouble scoring points, David. They're they're putting up points in the two victories. But if you look a little closer into the numbers, I see some red flags. I, I see Braxton Burmeister completing about forty four percent of his passes, whereas Hendon Hooker last year was over sixty percent. I see a team that's ten for thirty three on third down and. That's not going to get the job done over the course of the season to sustain drives. So I look at those numbers and I think maybe Hendon Hooker is what's missing from this offense. Couldn't agree more. I he, I believe Burmeister, Mike, I don't have the box score in front of me. Nine of 24 with a pick. 
against Duke. That's to, to, to think you could win a football game in the league with such an ineffective or skittish pass day. You know, absent Paul Johnson's old option <laughs> at Georgia Tech, that's that's rare. So I've got to think that this is the week that we see Hendon Hooker back under center. Now, the, the counterpoint to that is maybe Braxton gets more comfortable, uh, better fit into the offense as time goes on. But yeah, I agree with you. I, I look at those numbers. I look at how things are going, and I think that Hooker might be. And boy, wouldn't it be nice if Hooker comes in and all of a sudden the offense improves dramatically? It hasn't been bad, and they're 2-0. and So yeah. that's a nice place to be sitting if you're Virginia Tech, and that brings Brings us nicely to this week's installment of Who You Got. Thanks, Mike. It is Who You Got. Both Virginia Tech and UVA have two games under their belt. You've got a chance to see Braxton Burmeister with Hendon Hooker still waiting in the wings, and you've seen Brennan Armstrong for the Who's. So let's start with David. Uh, whose quarterback situation do you think is better right now, UVA or Virginia Tech? Who You Got, David? Virginia Tech, and I'll tell you what, guys, it's interesting that we explore this question this week with the Hokies playing North Carolina, because what happened in that six-overtime epic last year? Three different quarterbacks for Virginia Tech threw touchdown passes, and that was Ryan Willis and Hendon Hooker and Quincy Patterson. Well, now with Hooker Patterson and Burmeister. I just think Virginia Tech having those being three deep at that position. And I I know that the Cavaliers have Keaton Thompson behind Brennan Armstrong, which is a really nice one-two punch to have. But I think having three gives the Hokies the itch. Mike. Yeah, that makes sense. But David, when you look out on the field, there's only one quarterback behind center at a given time. And yeah, this year you need depth, you need all that. But right now, the way Brendan Armstrong is playing, the confidence he played with at Clemson, uh, his ability to move the ball with his legs, different than Bryce Perkins, certainly, but effective. I thought UVA's best success running the ball at Clemson was Brendan Armstrong. Uh, his ability to throw the deep ball, we've seen him do that, uh, especially week one with Lavelle Davis Jr. We saw week two, his accuracy with some of the short passes, uh, especially to Billy Kemp. You know I'd love to have three guys, but the old saying of if you have two or three quarterbacks, it means you don't have one. I don't think that applies to Tech, but I like the one guy that UVA's got. I think he's established. I think they know what they're going to be with him going forward. I'm going to go with Virginia on this one. Now, Armstrong and Virginia, they played at Clemson, as I mentioned. They lost by double digits. They were behind the entire way. None of that is particularly newsworthy, but I thought this was a far more competitive game than last year's ACC title game between the two teams. 62 to 17 Clemson rolled in that one now 41 23 a loss is still a loss but I thought UVA's program showed some progress didn't it on both sides of the ball Mike uh, I, I I thought offensively uh, they were they were just able to, to to move the ball a little better I mean UVA averaged more yards per play and gained more yards against Clemson than it did in the opener against Duke. I mean, what kind of odds could you have gotten there? And I think for Armstrong in his first two college starts to have more than 300 yards of total offense is pretty darn impressive. Now, hey, he threw two picks, including a bad one mm-hmm. that, that set up a, a, a Clemson touchdown. Now, the, the, the second one by Andrew Booth Jr. <laughs> in the end zone was 
off the charts acrobatic and otherwise might have been a touchdown to Lavelle Davis. Uh, so I, I don't really put that one on Armstrong. And then on on the defensive side, I, I, again, it, it, it's all about context. Travis Etienne averaged six yards a carry for Clemson. And normally you think that's awful for a defense. But Travis Etienne's career averages 7.7 a pop. I mean, I and he was great in the pass game. They couldn't tackle him a couple times. But I thought for the most part, when it came to rushing the ball, Virginia bottled up Clemson. Yeah, I thought that was going to be the plan going in um, twofold defensively. Don't let them just run the ball down your throats all day, which certainly Clemson has the size up front and the talent with Etienne to, to do that. And then don't let them throw deep passes over your head. Uh, Amari Rogers and you know it's such an explosive offense with Trevor Lawrence throwing the ball over the top. I thought UVA's defense did both those things exceptionally well and then the thing that got them was poor tackling and that's a little reminiscent unfortunately of the ACC title game, right? There were a number of plays in Charlotte last year where it seemed like the defense was in position to make a play uh, and then they'd break down and it's like while they were, Nick Grant told me, you know, he was kind of thinking about how to tackle T. Higgins last year and while he was thinking about it, (laughs) there goes Higgins to the end zone. Uh, So you don't have that time to think about things against Clemson. I thought the defense showed that against anybody but Clemson, it's going to be pretty effective this year. Yeah. Yes, there were there were missed tackles and such. And Nick Grant was was victimized twice by ETN, once on a missed tackle and another when uh or no, the the, the second time was when Amari Rogers hurdled him on, <laughs> on the way to the end zone. But guys like Rogers and ETN and Trevor Lawrence, I mean, they are special talents and they're just going to make most defenses look bad i mean that touchdown pass that trevor lawrence threw to amari rogers in the back of the end zone and that toe tap it's just you can't stop that you you just can't so i i I don't give virginia a pass but that might be the best 41-point game that a defense has had at UVA in quite some time. Absolutely. That hookup you're talking about with, with Lawrence and Rodgers, I mean, that's that's NFL work. That's professional football precision passing and athleticism. And, uh, you know, respectfully, that's not what NC State is going to present this weekend. It's a different offense. They don't have... Lawrence. They don't have Etienne. They don't have Rodgers. So what are we expecting and and, and what what should Virginia be able to do considering what they did at Clemson? Well, I'll tell you what, Mike, I don't know about you, but NC State's victory at Pitt on Saturday, one, surprised me and B, impressed me, especially how the Wolfpack did it. I mean, if nothing else, Pitt is stout defensively. And their NC State is trailing late with no timeouts left. And Devin Leary took them down the field to score the winning touchdown uh, on, a, on a back shoulder throw to Amezi, the, the, the wide out. He's good. They've got some quality backs led by Ricky Person Jr. And that offense isn't Clemson, but that offense with, with Leary is a lot different than the one I think we saw when the Hokies just thrashed the pack and Bailey Hockman was the quarterback for most of the night. Uh, so, you know, I, I, th- I think Saturday, it, it's one of those swing games in, in a schedule. You know, if Virginia can get that one 
and then get one at, at Wake Forest and be three and one headed to Miami, then you're really feeling good about the season. But you know, Saturday to me is kind of a coin flip. I'm glad you said that. It's wildly intriguing because I think it's easy to think of State as the team that was the the footnote to Virginia Tech's impressive season opening win, right? That was all about Tech and all about who they didn't have. And here they come and, and find a way to win. It didn't speak very highly of the Wolfpack and of what they have, but teams get better. Teams get better week one to week two. We hear it every year from every coach. Um, the fact that NC State's been through a little bit of this COVID stuff, guys, in and out. So um, did they find themselves at Pittsburgh or did they just play well in, in the fourth quarter? I don't know. And I think you're right that uh, we won't know until we've we've played two, three, maybe four quarters uh, in Charlottesville this weekend. Another thing we still don't know, will Virginia have transfer running back Ronnie Walker this season? The former Hopewell star, he transferred from Indiana to UVA, moving eight hours closer to his family during a pandemic. Easy, easy call for the NCAA to grant him a waiver. They said no. They said no to his first appeal, and they have not yet ruled on his final appeal requesting that waiver. Monday, Bronco Mendenhall was asked for an update on Ronnie Walker's appeal process. He did not mince words. When talking about the NCAA, he made it clear he's not pleased with the NCAA's failure to resolve this case yet. No, and and our administration is asking... Uh, well, what I've been told is every day. So it's not for lack of inquiring. Um, and it seems like our urgency is more than maybe that of who we're working with. Now, David, I wrote about the quagmire that, that is the NCA's transfer policy. It was part of a four-part series for lead newspapers, looking at the rise in athlete empowerment, that whole movement. And that series can be found now at, at richmond.com. We have a special landing page for all four stories. And joining the show to talk a little bit more about that project is Ethan Joyce from the Winston-Salem Journal. Ethan covers App State for the paper, and he wrote one of the four stories. His story is focusing on athletes and social media and what that adds to their voice. First off, Ethan, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a fun project to be part of, for sure. Now, first, can you can you walk us through your story? Just tell us what you found, what you wrote about, what you thought were, were the most important kind of takeaways. Yeah, sure. The, the whole premise of my story was considering student athletes and their ability to share their voice. And I think we're all very aware of social media at this point. You know, most of the apps that we use on a regular basis are, you know, 15, 10 years old. Um, but this was really trying to take a look at specifically athletes feeling more empowered to, to say things that maybe they haven't been able to say, um, but also colliding with the movement that we had going on around this nation with social injustice and the protests that followed from that. And you're talking about a lot of athletes, especially looking at, at college football and college basketball, which I know a lot of my story focused on, are young black males that are trying to understand their place in the world and trying to understand the bigger issues that we have in this country. And so it started off as just trying to see how these guys or how these student athletes could go about interacting with people, maybe maybe more so than they used to be able to, you know, 20 years ago or, or things like that. But really it focused on the movement that's kind of grown 
and how student athletes have played a pretty big role in that because they had this ability to try to tap into some other communities outside of just the the people that follow them because they're football players or basketball players. It's people who were also trying to march for a cause, people who are also trying to understand the the country. And um, it was it was really powerful to kind of go through this whole project and, and kind of tie that in with what's going on in our current day and time. What, what stood out to you? Because there's so many examples nationally, and you wrote a lot about them of, uh, you know, moments where social media helps amplify an athlete's voice for good. And then there's there's pitfalls, right? <laughs> like these kids can get themselves into a little bit of trouble with social media. So when you think about those two, the double-edged sword, what kind of what kind of stood out to you in your research? You know, I got to talk with Dr. Meredith Clark, who is at UVA in the communications department, um, and she has established her career on this really interesting intersection of, you know, looking at culture, looking at social social media. She's currently writing a book on Black Twitter and, and the, the digital culture and community that's kind of grown these last few years from when she wrote her dissertation in the mid-2010s to now. Um, and, and, you know, we talked a lot about that, how you've, you've got guys who are, are part of these big communities, part of these really big athletic communities, and maybe it kind of seemed like they were, they were dipping out of that silo and jumping into another one where they're jumping into, into social justice causes. They're jumping into these other components. And really the conversation I had with her was she was pointing out that we have this concept of these silos that exist, but in reality, they don't really exist or they shouldn't really exist when we think about them this way. Because, you know, when a young black man steps on a football field, he doesn't stop being a young black man that still has to deal with the problems and issues that he faces in this world. Um, I wish everybody could talk to her. When she writes her book, I'm probably going to buy it. It was she, she gave me a lot to think about for this project. She was one of the first people I talked to, and I think she really kind of helped shape the way that I, I pursued this story. Ethan, did, did you find in, in, in talking to folks that fueling this empowerment that athletes feel has been the response to what they've done on social media? Because it, 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 if it falls flat and no one reacts, then perhaps everything stops. But it seems like so many people responded to what these young men had to say. Absolutely. I think and that's one of the points that I tried to make in this story because, um, you know, some of the some of the stats that I was able to get, I, I talked to the president and founder of Influencer who works a lot with athletic departments across the country. And he was pointing out that the just just the fact that these guys are putting out, you know, content or posts or whatever term you want to use to talk about this. They get reactions almost like three to four times more often than like a school does. I think he I can't remember the actual engagement rate numbers that he, he gave me in comparison to a student athlete versus like the team or the athletic department account. Or even if you're looking at a pro athlete versus the professional team they play for, the engagement rate for the athlete in comparison to the team is through the roof. So no matter when they post, they're going to get a lot of responses. They're going to get people favoriting it or retweeting it or maybe even commenting back. And so when they take on this really big, powerful messages they're trying to convey, you're really talking about 
somebody that can that can cause communities to to collide in a very fast and efficient way and get a point across and it and it makes that statement whether people a- agree with it or not. Yeah, I, I thought you know you led your story with uh, Diami Brown, the wide receiver from North Carolina, a, a pretty powerful tweet from him. Uh, it's a picture of him interacting with the fans and, and his words were, sometimes I think this is the only time they really care about my life. I'm curious because different parts of the country view political issues differently um, You know, within a city, within a town, within a county, within a school community. How risky is it for these kids to you know, be putting their their views out there in terms of not everyone may may agree with with their stance. Yeah, I think it is this this kind of bigger realization that if you're going to take that chance to put yourself out there, it's probably going to come with consequences regardless. You know, I think we probably all talk about that a lot just when we're having free speech conversations that, you know, you're allowed to say what you want, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean it goes it goes uh, um, unreacted to. Um, you know, so I, th- I think that's what's kind of been really interesting. It's, it's like you, you it seemed like with some of these scenarios, you know, you're talking about Oklahoma State, Florida State, those weren't dealing with, um, you know, maybe the bigger social injustice issues, but they were dealing with situations where football coaches maybe, you know, didn't present a f- some facts the right way, or maybe they were wearing a T-shirt that their, their player didn't agree with. And, you know, it was these guys kind of looked at that and said, hey, I'm not going to be OK with that. And it's OK that I'm not OK with that. And this is how I feel about it. Um, you know, Mike, to kind of get back to your question earlier, you know, I think part of that, it comes with this inherent responsibility uh, that they're going to have to just start accepting as well. Um, you know, there is that there is that importance where if you're going to share some kind of facts, you should probably know that it's coming from a good place. Because as, as, as easy as it is for somebody to make a statement about social injustice or like, you know, kind of talk about the protests or marches that were going on, somebody else could just as easily share something from a site that may be more propaganda-like. Um, so it's, it's going to come with some responsibility, both, both from those student-athletes and the people that follow them to kind of gauge what they're sharing in the first place. And Ethan, I think it'll be interesting to observe as we move forward because, you know, another component of of this series was the whole name, image, and and likeness issue and athletes being able, college athletes being able to profit from those things is the more socially active athletes become, how will that impact their ability to monetize their name, image, and likeness? Will some folks gravitate toward them or will maybe some others shy away? You know, I think that's what's going to be interesting is you're going to see you're going to see just what guys stand for, but also probably what companies stand for as well. Mm -hmm. Because as of right now, you know, if you go to play at insert school, you're working with you're working in this equipment with these shoes. Your team meals are provided by this local company. They're they're this and that where it's it's going to open that opportunity for not only guys to share what what they are happy to endorse, but also it's going to it's going to give light to kind of where those companies stand on some of these bigger issues. Um, you know, by and large, that's probably a good thing. 
I think we want to know, you know, exactly as consumers, you know, myself, I want to know what companies stand for. I think, and if, if, if they're able to kind of attach to these student athletes in the right way, um, I think you're going to see a lot of benefit from that, for, especially for the student athlete, but even more so for everyone's understanding as a consumer trying to figure out who we want to give our money to. <laughs> yeah, great I, point. I think, yeah, and I think one of the really interesting things in the series was, you know, we wrote these four separate stories, but I think as we went through them, we realized there's so much intersection, right? I mean, I, I wrote about the rule changes, the governments, the one-time transfer, and how that switches some of the power to athletes. You writing about social media, uh, the story about name, image, likeness. And again, you can find these on, on both of our newspapers' websites now if you want to read them. Uh, but it, it all intersects, doesn't it? It all kind of works together. And, and how you brand yourself on social media uh, impacts your ability to, to profit from your likeness. It's a, it's a really interesting intersection, I think. Yeah. And I, I just think we're on this precipice where, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not ready to say that the student athletes are completely empowered yet, but like we're on this point where all these things come together really fast and it's a completely different ball game. No, you know, terrible pun or wordplay not intended there. But I mean, you're, you're talking about a, a day and time where we're going to see guys actually be able to benefit based off of the standing they have, based off of the ability they have, and the platforms that they're given by by coming to these schools in the first place. I'm really interested to see what it's going to be like when maybe the, you know, the the school doesn't have the ability to grant an interview or not grant an interview, that it's going to be, you know, kind of more on this individual level, which is going to have its flaws, you know, for <laughs> For us, for us as reporters and and just people in general trying to to navigate that new that new landscape, but um, it's really going to be neat to see how this how this grows and maybe how this forms in the next ten years or so. It was it was fascinating to to me even to watch this spring and summer as current and former student athletes at Clemson because of their social media advocacy. I mean, that school is changing the name of a building, of the main building on campus, and it's Honors College because of those student-athletes. They are the ones who started the movement to have those names removed because of the racial injustice associated with the people whose names were on the honors college and built. Yeah. And that, and, and that's kind of something that was, that was mentioned to me in doing some of these interviews, you know, we think about the history of, you know, a program or an athletics department. And we think about, you know, so-and-so having this many national championships and, you know, each year the, the program stays the same, the players change. Um, but it, it's the program, but really like if you look at it and you consider at the end of the day, it's always been the players, the players have established the standard of whether a program has been really good. I mean, the coaches obviously play a part in that, but you know, this player begat that player and that player begat that player and that football program or basketball program or whatever you want to say started when somebody, somebody starred and changed the level of that program and they started building off of what they did. Um, and I think that's kind of why you see that voice meaning so much right now. That's why you see those Clemson athletes, like you mentioned, being able to change change the things they did. And even the the current players at Texas, they didn't get everything they wanted out of their list of demands, but they got quite a bit. 
And that's a really big deal. Yeah, Ethan, that's a great point. And, you know, one of the things that, that has certainly amplified the voice is what you're writing about here in social media. And, and one of the big social media platforms, of course, is Twitter. So before we let you go, we're going to ask you to join us in a segment we do on the show called Take It or Leave It. And it's on that very topic. Thank you, Mike. It is Take It or Leave It. It is a one word question this week. All three of you are very active on Twitter, but imagine for a minute your job didn't require that you have a Twitter account. So here's take it or leave it. Twitter, take it or leave it. Let's start with Ethan. Oh, I'm, I'm leaving it. I'm leaving it in the dust. It's a cesspool. I don't like it. And I'm, I'm going to enjoy the peace and tranquility that comes with reading a book instead of looking at my phone all the time. Okay, Mike. I, I want to agree because I want to leave it. I always said that uh, if I wasn't in this business, the first thing I would do would be to delete my Twitter account. But I find myself so enthralled by the good and the bad, right? What we were just talking about, hearing athletes' voices, hearing their stances, their perspective, um, and the bad, some of the just dirtiness of American politics right now or um, the rumor mill. I, I hope I'll leave it, <laughs> but I've got to be honest, I'll probably end up taking it. <laughs> David. I will take it with, with a caveat. I'm gonna I'm gonna play this one down the middle and re, and really cop out. I will not tweet, and I don't know if I'll I'll just have some kind of burner account so I can I can follow a, a, a few few people. I mean, I I go back. I learned that Osama bin Laden was dead on Twitter and so, so many other things. So I, I think I'd keep it for breaking news, but I certainly wouldn't have an active account that anyone knew about. And I certainly wouldn't be staring at my phone every day. I'm with you there, Ethan. Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot not to enjoy on Twitter. I'll tell you something I do enjoy. I enjoy following you, Ethan. I enjoyed working with you on this series. Uh, and I appreciate you joining us here on the show today. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot, guys. It was fun. Now, David, outside of Virginia, Virginia Tech, one of the, the biggest ACC games probably in a while, Clemson and Miami, we know how good Clemson is. But I think you and I are starting to to believe that I know we say every year Miami's back, but, <laughs> but maybe this is the year that Miami's back. What do you think about this one? I think it's an incredibly in, intriguing game. I was remarking to some people I know at, at Clemson on Saturday night that my one regret is that this kind of game would happen during a pandemic where only 19, 20,000 will be in the stands. Man, if, if that place had 82,000 folks in it, what an electric, electric evening it would be. And, and really day from start to finish because college game day will be there. And, and Mike, I'll tell you what, I think Virginia put some things on tape for the Miami coaching staff to think about and say, hey, you know, if the Cavaliers could, could do that, particularly, you know, Brennan Armstrong ran for nearly 90 yards mm -hmm. on Saturday. It would have been more than 100 were it not for sacks. And as effective a runner as Brennan Armstrong is, mm, he's not De'Ara King. De'Ara uh, King, given those kinds of holes and gaps, he's going to really hurt you. So I, I'm just fascinated to see how the Hurricanes attack that Clemson defense. Yeah, and, and all respect to Virginia's running backs, 
Cameron Harris is a mm-hmm. better back. And now you've got to defend both. And that's the thing that gets lost sometimes when talking about defending a quarterback, a running quarterback like Derek King or um, any of the guys we see who can move. When you have a running back, that's also that accomplished. When you have a line and a run game that's somewhat established and uh, Harris is averaging 88 and a half yards a game, 7.1 yards per carry. When you have that kind of a piece, it becomes a lot harder to defend that quarterback. So yeah, I'm intrigued and, and I'm curious, David, what kind of a game do we think we're going to see? Because this is the number one and number two offense in the ACC. Miami's mm-hmm. number one at 45 points a game, Clemson two at 42. Uh, but these are also two of the better defenses in the league and, and the numbers are skewed. It's early in the year, but what kind of a game are we expecting to see play out? I don't know what the over is, but I'd still bet it. <laughs> no, I, I, I really would. My, I, I think we're going to see a lot of points. Maybe both teams in the 30s on, on, on Saturday night. Uh, we mentioned De'Ara King. You mentioned Cameron Harris. Brevin Jordan's arguably the best tight end in in the league. If if it's not him, it's probably hung along up at BC. But uh, man, I, I think Jordan gives gives King such a weapon there in the in the middle of the field where Virginia was able to do some damage as well. So yeah, I I think we're going to see some points because you know as as much as Miami likes to bust out that hurricane or that turnover chain, excuse me, and is as capable as Miami is defensively, you're not going to slow down Trevor Lawrence and company, but for so long. And and let's not forget, not to jinx the young man, but Trevor Lawrence has now gone eleven consecutive games without throwing a pick. He's up to over 300 pass attempts without throwing an interception. That's that's pretty remarkable, a stretch that obviously goes back to last season. I have I have down in my production notes to ask you, do you think we'll see the turnover chain <laughs> considering how good Clemson is and how good Lawrence is with ball security? Well, I think we will simply because of the odds. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I have this right. My, I don't think Clemson's committed a turnover this year in, in three games. So that has them overdue. You're a subscriber yeah, yeah, to the overdue theory. Yes, the re- regression to the mean. <laughs> now that makes sense. Either way, I think it's it's really one that, that we're looking forward to. And uh, with a pair of noon kicks for us, uh, one we'll actually be able to watch, right? Well, on the drive home, I because remember, you get to just <laughs> drive from Scott Stadium back, back to the mansion. <laughs> I'll have several hours in a car home from Chapel Hill and and no I won't fire it up on my phone and watch TV while I'm driving but I am going to have it on the radio. See I, I read your tweets I thought you take the limo I assume the limo <laughs> I assume the limo had a television in the back seat. Yeah, maybe that's something for us to work on. Maybe I need to just hi- hire a better chauffeur. Yeah maybe Norm Wood would be interested in that position. I don't know if that's something he'd uh, <laughs> want to take on in addition to his writing responsibilities but that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You could subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts. Just find the RTD Podcast channel and please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. You can also find that four-part series we talked about in the show at the website as well. Thank you to Ethan Joyce for being our guest today. The show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please, Join David and me again next week.